Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit historic Ybor City. Um, So we met up with Ybor in uh, Key West and said, hey, there's this place that's up north, they've got a new train system, Um, they have a port, I think it would work really well for you. And Ybor agreed, so he came up and he bought 40 acres and started to lay out the plans for his his cigar town. Memories of collecting and selling Spanish moss in the 1930s. He would drive the truck up under the trees. I could pull the moss if he'd get me high enough. And we'd fill the truck full of moss and bring it back to our house. And we'll hear a Florida slave narrative. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the mid-1880s, Henry Plant was extending his railway system into the small pioneer settlement of Tampa, Florida. In addition to making Tampa accessible by rail, Plant expanded the port and built luxury hotels in the area. Around that same time, Vincente Martinez Ebor moved his cigar manufacturing operation from Key West to the Tampa area, establishing Ebor City. Elizabeth McCoy is curator of programs and education for the Ebor City Museum. He was a cigar maker that had a cigar factory in Cuba, and then he moved it to Key West and was having some problems with labor unrest and some, some being on a small island type problems. And uh, he had a business partner in New York that was coming down looking for guava, uh, a place to grow guava, and look, came through Florida and, and saw the area in Tampa right by the port and thought that it would work really well for Ebor, though he found it wouldn't really work well for his guava trees at all. Um, so he met up with Ebor in uh, Key West and said, hey, there's this place that's up north, they've got a new train system, um, they have a port, I think it would work really well for you. And Ebor agreed, so he came up and he bought 40 acres and started to lay out the plans for his for his cigar town. As Ebor built his city based around cigar manufacturing, Henry Plant continued developing the Tampa area as well. Plant's Tampa Bay Hotel is now the University of Tampa. Both Plant's and Ebor's entrepreneurial vision helped to establish West Florida as we know it. Ebor brought Spanish and Cuban influences to the area that remain today. Chantel Havia is president of the Ebor City Museum Society. Mr. Ebor actually is from uh, Valencia, Spain. But uh, as Liz mentioned, he was uh, manufacturing cigars in Cuba and then Key West, and there was such political unrest that he needed a better place to build his cigars. And so when uh, Gavino Gutierrez brought him to Tampa in uh, 1885, he said, this is the place. He actually, in a period of about one year, uh, 
he created a grid for this for Ywar City, which is sort of like a little first planned community. He built housing for the cigar workers, and then he brought them from Cuba and Spain, and ultimately from a couple of、uh, little towns in Sicily. Although Ybor City was primarily populated by Spanish and Cuban cigar workers, it was truly a multi-ethnic community. Elizabeth McCoy and Chantel Havia. There were groups that came from Sicily,、um, but there were also small groups from both Germany and from Romania, a Romanian Jew contingency that also found Ybor City、um, and. Contributed to it not only into the cigar industry but also、um, in the businesses that helped support the city. Because when Ebor City was built, it was basically built in a swamp,、um, so there weren't any,、uh, you know, other amenities already here. Basically, everything had to be made in order to support this large cigar industry. So all the grocery stores and the clothing shops and and, and restaurants, all of that had to come from somewhere.、Um, and all of these different groups brought interesting elements to that whole picture. One of the interesting things about Ybor City, and very often it's portrayed as a Cuban community, and certainly there were quite a number of Cubans who worked in, who came here and worked in the cigar factories. But at one time, there were about fourteen thousand Spaniards in Tampa by about nineteen thirty, and it was the third largest Spanish, not Spanish-speaking, but Spaniards from Spain. Population in the United States, so I think sometimes that's not recognized,、uh, and they contributed、uh, to about half the revenues、uh, of Tampa at, in the early days of Ybor City. When Stetson Kennedy traveled throughout Florida in the late 1930s and early 1940s, collecting oral histories for the WPA, he recorded interviews in Ybor City. In his book Palmetto Country, Kennedy writes about the very unique community institutions of Ebor City, including mutual aid societies and social clubs. And what made the mutual aid societies so interesting was that they were not only social clubs, so they provided a sort of social outlet and sense of community for the people.、Um, they also provided some other vital services:、um, banking,、um, medical services,、um, and this was all done in, in a cooperative setting.、Um, so when you paid your dues to be a member of the club. By virtue of doing that, you then were, gain, you know, gained access to the hospitals and the pharmacies and the banking facilities, and so you really were given、um, entree into some very,、uh, you know, useful、um, amenities that you might not have had access to otherwise.、Um, at the time, the hospitals that were associated with、um, the the two major Spanish mutual aid societies, the Centro Asturiano and the Centro Español,、um, those two hospitals were deemed the the most Uh, modern and well equipped of any of the of the hospitals in the whole city. So, and people were able to get their care for a fraction of the cost that they would have at other municipal hospitals. So, it was a pretty interesting setup that they had. And again, like you said, it was really a model for for other societies that sprang up in other more northern cities. We often refer to it as here in Ebor City as cradle to grave service because the minute someone was born into a family, they fell under the plan of the the. Head of the household, and this was for 25 cents a week that、uh, they would get everything from the not only the healthcare, but they had、uh, the Spaniards alone had four cemeteries. The Italians have their own cemeteries, where that's why we call it cradle to grave. You were taken care of. If you lost your job, they would come to your rescue to help you with that as well. So it was、uh, it was a great way to not only socialize with your own. But to be cared for in a new land that probably was a little bit 
inhospitable at first. From the late 1800s through the first three decades of the 20th century, the diverse residents of Ybor City thrived. The cigar industry brought millions of dollars to West Florida annually until Ybor City entered a period of decline in 1930. Elizabeth McCoy. There were a number of factors, just like any other city in the United States. The Great Depression had a huge impact on Ybor City as well. Um, but also at around the same time, um, the cigar industry in Ybor City was a hand-rolling operation. Um, and that was part of its mystique, was that it was this very high-quality tobacco rolled in this very specialized way, um, and it, that commanded a lot of respect. But then the machine age came about, and cigars started to be made by machines much cheaper than they could be done by hand and the cigarette also gained a lot of popularity and so that combined with economic decline led to sort of a decline in people's desire to spend a lot of money on something like a cigar um, and the hand rolling business just sort of tumbled um, and it's, once the cigar industry started to fall apart and world wars started to happen <laughs> the second world war in particular um, people start you know People moved out of the, the area when they, the GIs came back. Um, they were given money to move into brand new houses, but that Ybor was an older community at that time. So it just, a confluence of things sort of came together and made it so that the community started to break apart. During the so-called urban renewal of the 1960s, many historic structures in Ybor City were demolished, some to make way for Interstate 4. Many of the city's beautiful brick streets with granite curbs were destroyed by widening. By the 1970s, though, people became more aware of the historic value of Ybor City, and the area entered a renaissance of sorts. One institution that held on through it all is the Columbia Restaurant, which opened in Ybor City in 1905. As Chantal Havia explains, the Columbia is still an anchor for the community. It is indeed. It brings a lot of tourism uh, to Ybor City. Um, we very often, when we are giving museum tours at the Ybor City Museum State Park, well, um, we could spend half our day standing outside saying, the Columbia's that way, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of the must-see and must-visit when you come here. So they're really good about bringing a lot of visitors to Ymir City. Frankly, we also have a lot of very other interesting places that are historic that you can uh, get traditional and typical foods, but that's the iconic one. As historic preservation efforts emerged in the 1970s and 80s, Ybor City was revitalized. As Elizabeth McCoy points out, many of the core elements that make the community unique have remained in place for more than a century. In addition to something like the Columbia, um, a lot of the long-standing institutions, the cultural institutions have remained. Um, many of the mutual aid societies or the social groups that, that developed mutual aid societies are still here, the Centro Suriano, uh, La Union Martín Maceo, the Italian Club, the Cuban Club, they're all still here. Um, most of them are in the buildings that they built at the beginning of the last century. Um, so there is a sort of long-standing sense of community um, going on. But as far as the sort of historic preservation movement, as it were, um, yeah, there are every day there are businesses that are moving in and, and rather than bulldozing a building are taking the time and the money to rehabilitate it and, and keep the gem. Um, and we have organizations like the Barrio Latino that step in and make sure that any new construction adheres to a certain look um, and, and helps to really maintain the, the sort of cityscape um, of Ybor City. The Ybor City Museum State Park was established in 1982 to preserve, promote, and celebrate Ybor City heritage. The museum is in an historic building that was originally a bakery. It was the, the La Joven Bakery originally, and now it's 
referred to as the Frelita Bakery, um, and it's from 1917, the building is, so it makes it, I believe, the second oldest bakery in Ybor behind La Segunda Central, which is on the other side of Ybor. That one predates it by about two years. Um, but yeah, if you uh, stroll through the museum, the original ovens in the back are still intact, um, so you can get a really good idea of sort of the sense of space of the bakery. and. Um, the, the ovens themselves are really neat because they accommodated the, the Cuban bread that's typical of Ybor City, which is several feet long. Um, and so the ovens are kind of giant in order to, to make large batches of these, this long loaf of bread. So it's, a, it's an interesting building. And I'm glad that it was able to be preserved again, like many of the buildings in Ybor are. It's preserved and repurposed, but not lost. The exhibits and artifacts on display at the Ybor City Museum focus on the Spanish, Cuban, Italian, Jewish, and German groups who established Ybor City. One area of the museum recreates a cigar factory. That's a really neat area, and people uh, can really get a sense of what it might have been like to be in one of these factories. It's one thing to look at it from the outside, but it's another to look at it from the inside. Um, the rolling floors... Um, were giant, hundreds of people sitting shoulder to shoulder, rolling at these long tables. Um, and the recreation that we've done of the rolling floor um, has a couple of the actual rolling tables um, set in front of a large-scale photograph of a, a, a historic you know, photograph of the rolling floor, so you can get sort of a sense of scale of what it might have been like to be on that floor. Um, and it also shows the lector stand, um, hundreds of men sitting in the room all day rolling cigars would get mighty boring. Um, and to, to help keep people on task and to keep their minds occupied, um, the lector would sit on a raised dais and would read basically all day. Um, they would read fiction, they would read the newspapers, they would read pamphlets that people were circulating, they would tell stories. Um, so it was really an interesting figure in all of the cigar factories and, and would get people's mouth talking. Like I said, they would talk about politics, they would talk about modern plays, they would read them, uh, you know, popular works of fiction. So uh, it, all of that is represented in that, in that little diorama that we have set up. There's actually a play that's based on a lector in, in Tampa called Anna in the Tropics, and it was an award-winning play um, that was on Broadway. It also came to Tampa, uh, to our Performing Arts Center, but it's, it's pretty close to being correct historically. One of the interesting things about that mural to me is that as much as we talk about diversity these days, I think Ybor City was really in the forefront of diversity back in the late 1800s. And uh, what you see in that mural is you see people very well dressed. Uh, some of them have ties, they have long sleeve white shirts, some of them have hats on. Uh, so that's the first thing you notice is how well these supposedly manufacturers are dressed. And it was way beyond what you would imagine as a manufacturing job. It was a good job and a well-paying job in Tampa. Second thing you'll see is that there are men, women, uh, African uh, Americans, all in the same picture. So you had the diversity of um, all those people. And of course, we know that there were Spaniards, Italians, and Cubans in, in the mix of that. So um, it was interesting that all these people managed to work at very good jobs together and get along and help each other. They all had quotas so that when, um, they, when somebody got sick or something, they'd help each other with quotas. The Florida State Lottery is popular today, and many people travel to Tampa to gamble legally at the Hard Rock Casino. In the first half of the 20th century, illegal gambling was a favorite pastime in Ybor City, particularly through a lottery game called Belita. An exhibit at the Ybor City Museum features an ivory Belita set. Chantal Havia. And we have a newly redesigned um, 
exhibit that tells how the game of Bolita was played. Needless to say, it wasn't um, legal as the lottery is now, so it was uh, something that was played underground and uh, sometimes fixed by the fact that they would uh, either ice one of the balls or they would weight one of the balls so that it would fall to the bottom. Um, it, was, it was an interesting way they selected the balls. They would uh, put them in a burlap sack and tie it up and then they'd uh, shake it all up and they'd make this production of throwing it against the wall and then you know they'd kind of corner of the bag and that's how they would kind of get the one <laughs> that maybe was kind of fixed. But uh, you know we don't talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> also part of the Ybor City Museum State Park Complex is a garden and three casitas or little houses. Vincente Martinez Ebor made the inexpensive houses available to factory workers, and one is now open to the public. And we have uh, set it up so that it looks as though a cigar worker's family was actually living in it. Um, so it has period-specific furnishings, um, a children's room that has um, their clothing and toys, um, and then a kitchen area um, that have all been, again, they, they have period artifacts um, and when we take people through it we we like to point out you know a lot mostly the differences that you would see between now and then um, uh, we, it's a good thing for the kids when when kids come on field trips it's interesting for them to try to transport themselves into the past um, it's one thing for them to read the panels and hear the history but it's another one we can put them in a situation where they actually have to compare it to their own lives and it seems to make a really big impact on them Elizabeth McCoy is Curator of Programs and Education, and Chantal Havia is President of the Ybor City Museum Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. The beauty of Spanish moss hanging from large oak trees is part of the southern mystique. Janie Gould talks with a woman who remembers collecting Spanish moss to sell in the 1930s. Spanish moss was an income producer for at least one Florida family during the Depression. Sarah Blair Weathers was living near Ocala when her dad lost his job and needed money to feed his family. He had a big truck. I especially went with him. About how old were you? Well, I was 13 when I moved away, so I was maybe 11 or 12. He would drive the truck up under the trees. I could pull the moss if he'd get me high enough. And we'd fill the truck full of moss and bring it back to our house. This was moss from live oaks on where? Just anywhere? Anywhere. And, of course, there was a lot of wild country in those days. And so it was pretty much free for the taking? Mm-hmm. There's not so much moss left anymore. Everything's built up, for one thing, in Florida. It wasn't in those days. So you were the person who pulled the moss off the trees, usually? Well, he and I together. And you'd fill up the back of a truck take it home and uh, dump it in the backyard and my dad would dig a hole about uh, three feet wide and about six feet long approximately and he'd fill it full of moss and then he'd fill it full of water and then put dirt over the top of it. I think it was around six weeks it stayed there and it rotted naturally 
and the uh, hull of the moss, and you know the moss is hairs. Each hair is covered with a softer shell. That would rot. So we would dig it out of there and wash it through wash tubs. I bet it smelled. I don't remember. <laughs> Probably. On the other hand, it was water. I, I don't know. Maybe it didn't. And then he had long uh, clotheslines across the back of those pits. He'd hang it on those clotheslines until it dried, and then it would be black, what they call hair moss. Hair moss? Really? Hair moss. And it was black? It was black because the green had rotted and washed off. And was it fairly soft by this time? To the touch? Uh, well, it was kind of like a hard mattress. He sold it, uh, and the hair moss was worth a lot more money than the just regular moss. Really? How would he sell it? Well, he took it off in a truck. I really don't know where he went. As I said, I was pretty young. We also made pillows and mattresses. and That you sold to people or for yourselves? Both. Anything to make money. How comfortable was it to sleep on a moss-filled mattress. I don't remember it was any problem at all. Of course, maybe by that time I was used to it. Actually, you know, it was like a padding rather than like a soft, spongy mattress. Do you know how much he would be paid for, let's say, 50 pounds of moss? Well, best I can remember, and I wouldn't swear, but I think it was around six or seven cents a pound. Did he make enough to support the family for a while? From selling moss? Well, my mom was a manager. We did our own gardens. We had all our vegetables out of the garden. We had our own cow for our own milk. We always had a pig. How long did your father collect a Spanish moss and sell it? Till we left Summerfield to take a regular job, which was $50 a month. I bet that seemed like heaven after that. Oh, yeah. It was regular. Sarah Blair Weathers' family later moved to Vero Beach, where her father had found a job in the citrus business. After graduating from Vero Beach High School in 1936, Sarah worked as a bookkeeper for Waldo Sexton's companies. She's lived in Fort Pierce since 1946. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Although over 2,000 first-person accounts of American slavery exist today, only a handful come from those who were brought here from Africa. Bill Dudley talks to the editor of a new book that provides a rare glimpse into life in 19th century Florida as witnessed by a former slave. My father was a weaver, and I remember standing by him while he wove cotton raised in the fields thereby. Actor Leroy Mitchell reads the words of Satiki, who, as an old man, recalled his boyhood in the interior of Guinea, West Africa. I have seen him at prayer kneeling on a sheepskin, bowing to the earth, his head touching the ground. There's only about maybe 20 manuscripts of this kind that exist. The slave's own story from being born in Africa and then what happened to them before they got to this country. Anthropologist and historian Patricia C. Griffin tells Satiki's story for the first time in her book, Odyssey of an African Slave. He was born about 1795. He lived in a clay-walled town. Uh, one day when he was four or five years old, he and his father and mother went, traveled to a village and stayed overnight. In the morning, slave raiders attacked the village. The inhabitants ran into the swamp. 
directly. A man entered our house and took the gold rings from my mother's fingers and the beads from her neck. Then another man came and took her away. My father arrived and seen us boys hiding in the corner, took his sword and stood by the door. Two men came and told him to give up. He then surrendered. One man took my brother. The other took me. But although the boy never saw his family again, luck was on his side. He was given a job tending sheep and treated well by his new masters. A year later, he was taken to the coast and after serving several English slave traders, sold to the captain of a slave ship on which he became a cabin boy. Satiki landed in Charleston in 1807. Later, he was sold for the last time to a Savannah merchant named Josiah Smith. Renamed Jack, he accompanied the Smith family first to New England and later to a farm in Fernandina, north of Jacksonville. When he was there, he was captured again, this time in the War of 1812, and allowed to decide whether he wanted to go off with the English as a free person or stay with the Smiths. And I'm not sure how this took place, but he ended up with the Smiths. Maybe he'd had enough of the English on the frontier of In 1817, the family settled in St. Augustine. These were the last years of what historians call the Second Spanish Period in Florida, and Josiah Smith was running much-needed supplies past the American blockade in return for grants of Spanish land. Years later, Jack would recount rare and priceless details of the lives of people in the Spanish city. At early mass, a white lace veil covered the head and the bosom of the ladies, Tags and ribbons fluttered from the candelabras. Incense arose before the altar, then from a silver censer. And the women, seated on their silver rugs upon the tabby floor, counted their rosaries in prayer and flashed their tasseled fans. That was a period that we don't know much about. And to get a first-hand account and buy a slave is very unusual. Brushwood was brought together the day before by a Negro with a canoe load of oysters. These, collected about in heaps, were roasted and seasoned with oil, orange juice, and garlic. The people made merry with cattle and wine and smoking cigars. By 1845, the year Florida became a state, Jack was already conducting services for other blacks in a church he had established and raised the money to build. He was officially ordained a Methodist minister in 1869. That same year, now a free man sitting on the porch of his cabin, Jack began to dictate the story of his long and eventful life. The man known as Uncle Jack Smith lived out his last days as a kind of local celebrity, selling oranges from a grove left to him by the family. He died in 1882, aged 87. And I have a sense that this is a fella who... Wherever he was, he maximized things for himself. I think of that as a lesson for all of us. We have a lot of things to overcome, but if you have the strength, it turns out okay. And he certainly was treated better than most slaves of that time. So that's what I got personally from this. Patricia C. Griffin is editor of Odyssey of an African Slave, published by University Press. 
I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.